European Heart Journal, Issue at a Glance, Volume 41, Issue 7, Focus Issue, Acute Coronary Syndromes, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Thomas Lucia, read to you by Morgan Bryan. Frontiers of Acute Coronary Syndromes, PPCI Time Windows, and 15-Year Outcomes, Bleeding, and Minoka. The spectrum of acute coronary syndromes, or ACS, is expanding rapidly, paving the way for a more personalised management of these patients. What used to be a heart attack has become an ST-segment elevation, or STEMI, or non-ST-segment elevation, myocardial infarction, NSTEMI. Then we learned that in young women of childbearing age, the underlying cause of ACS may be spontaneous coronary dissection, whereas in postmenopausal women it may be Takotsubo syndrome. Finally, myocarditis may present as an ACS. Moreover, STEMI and NSTEMI may not only be caused by plaque rupture, but also endothelial erosion, which may not even require stenting. What's more, some patients do have features of an ACS without obstructing coronary artery disease, the so-called minoca. This fascinating development is further discussed in The Year in Cardiology, Acute Coronary Syndromes by Adrian Banning from the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford and colleagues. They remind us that the management of ACS has made enormous progress over the last decades due to the introduction of defibrillization, beta blockers, thrombolytics, aspirin, primary percutaneous transluminal intervention, P2Y12 inhibitors, statins, radial access, and eventually PCSK9 inhibitors, among others. However, in spite of these remedies, there is a remaining acute mortality risk in particular in those presenting in cardiogenic shock or after resuscitation and an accruing number of major cardiovascular events or MACE over the following years. There is therefore an unmet need in the management of ACS. A frequent complication of the modern management of ACS with primary percutaneous coronary intervention or PCI is bleeding. In their fast-track contribution, temporal trends in bleeding events in acute myocardial infarction Insights from the Swede Heart Registry. Moa Simonsson and colleagues from the Karolinska Institutet in Stockholm, Sweden, describe the time trends of in-hospital and out-of-hospital bleeding parallel to the development of new treatments and to ischemic outcomes over the last 20 years in a nationwide myocardial infarction population in 371,431 enrolled in the Swede Heart Registry. In-hospital bleeding increased from 0.5% to a peak at 2% in 2005 to 2006 and thereafter decreased to 1.3%. Out-of-hospital bleeding increased in a stepwise manner from 2.5% to 3.5% and eventually to 4.8%. The increase in both in-hospital and out-of-hospital bleeding was paralleled to an increasing use of primary PCI and antithrombotic treatment and potent dual antiplatelet therapy, while the decrease in in-hospital bleeding between 2007 and 2010 was paralleled by an implementation of bleeding avoidance strategies. In-hospital reinfarction decreased from 2.8% to 0.6%, and out-of-hospital myocardial infarction from 12.6% to 7.1%. The composite out-of-hospital myocardial infarction cardiovascular death and stroke decreased similarly from 18.4% to 9.1%. Thus, during the last 20 years, the introduction of primary PCI and intense antithrombotic regimens led to increased bleeding, but concomitantly ischemic events markedly were reduced and survival improved.
These impressive findings are further discussed in an editorial by Debarata Mukherjee from the Texas Tech University in El Paso, Texas, USA. Primary PCI today is first-line therapy in patients presenting with STEMI. Indeed, the pioneering Danish Acute Myocardial Infarction 2, or DANAMI 2 trial, found that inter-hospital transport to primary PCI was superior to fibrinolysis at the local hospital in patients with STEMI at 30 days. In their article, 16-year follow-up of the Danish Acute Myocardial Infarction 2, or DANAMI 2 trial, Primary percutaneous coronary intervention versus fibrinolysis in ST-segment elevation myocardial infarction, Michael Meng and colleagues from the Aarhus University Hospital in Denmark investigated the 16-year cardiovascular outcomes. Initially, 1,572 STEMI patients were randomized to primary PCI or fibrinolysis. Those undergoing primary PCI at referral hospitals were immediately referred to the nearest invasive centre. After 16 years, those treated with primary PCI had a sustained lower rate of MACE compared to patients treated with fibrinolysis with a hazard ratio of 0.86 and among those transported for primary PCI with a hazard ratio of 0.82. No difference in all-cause mortality was found, but cardiac mortality was reduced by 4.4% in favour of primary PCI. Primary PCI postponed a main event with 12.3 months compared to fibrinolysis. Thus, the benefits of primary PCI over fibrinolysis was maintained at 16-year follow-up. This exciting confirmation of the values of revascularization is put into context in a thoughtful editorial by Borja Ibenez from Centro Nacional de Investigación de Cardiología in Madrid, Spain. STEMI guidelines recommend primary PCI as the default reperfusion strategy when feasible within 120 minutes of diagnostic ECG, while otherwise a pharmacoinvasive strategy is recommended. There is, however, a lack of direct evidence to support the guidelines, and in real-world situations primary PCI is often performed beyond recommended timelines. In their article, Five-Year Outcomes Following Timely Primary Percutaneous Intervention late primary percutaneous intervention, or a pharmacoinvasive strategy in ST-segment elevation myocardial infarction, the FAST-MI program. Nicolas Tanchon from the Hôpital Européen Georges Pompidou in Paris, France, and his colleagues assessed five-year outcomes according to timing of primary PCI compared to fibrinolysis with referral to a primary PCI centre. Among 4,250 STEMI patients, 2,942 with reperfusion therapy and onset to first call within 12 hours were included. Outcomes at five years were compared according to the type of reperfusion strategy and the timing of primary PCI. Overall, 54% had timely primary PCI, while 28% had late primary PCI and 28% received fibrinolysis. Five-year survival was higher with a pharmacoinvasive strategy, with 89.8% compared with late primary PCI with 79.5%, with an adjusted hazard ratio of 1.51, and similar to timely primary PCI, 88.2%, adjusted hazard ratio 1.02. Concordant results were observed in propensity score match cohorts and for event-free survival. Thus, a substantial portion of patients have primary PCI beyond recommended timelines and have poorer five-year outcomes compared with a pharmacoinvasive strategy. 
These stimulating results are put into context in an editorial by Franz van der Werf from the Catholic University in Leuven in Belgium. Surprisingly, some patients presenting clinically as an ACS with chest pain, ECG changes and necrosis markers do not show significant coronary obstruction at angiography. However, their outcome is still a matter of debate. In their article entitled Myocardial Infarction with Non-Obstructive Coronary Arteries as Compared with Myocardial Infarction and Obstructive Coronary Disease Outcomes in a Medicare Population Rachel Dreyer and colleagues from the Yale New Haven Hospital in Connecticut, USA investigate a long-term prognosis of myocardial infarction with non-obstructive coronary arteries, or MONOCA. Among 286,780 with ACS, 5.9% had MONOCA. In MONOCA patients, the 12-month rates of MACE, 18.7% versus 27.6%, mortality, 12.3% versus 16.7%, and rehospitalization for ACS, 1.3% versus 6.1%, and heart failure, 5.9% versus 9.3%, were significantly lower compared to ACS caused by coronary obstruction, but was similar for rehospitalization for stroke. Following risk adjustment, Minoka patients had a 43% lower risk of MACE over 12 months compared to those with coronary obstruction. Thus, this study confirms an unfavourable prognosis in elderly patients with Minoka, with 1 in 5 patients suffering MACE over 12 months. These clinically highly relevant findings are further discussed in a balanced editorial by Gianpaolo Nicolai, Filippo Crea and Rocco Montone from the Catholic University of the Sacred Heart in Rome, Italy. Novel prognostic markers besides classical cardiovascular risk factors are crucial to increase precision in the risk assessment of ACS patients. Recently, a number of novel biomarkers providing incremental value have been described. Glucagon-like peptide 1, or GLP-1, is a gut-increasing hormone inducing postprandial insulin secretion. GLP-1 levels were recently found to be increased in patients with ACS. GLP-1 receptor antagonists improve cardiovascular outcomes in patients with diabetes. In their article, glucagon-like peptide 1 levels predict cardiovascular risk in patients with acute myocardial infarction. Mikhail Lierka and colleagues from the University Hospital in Aachen in Germany assessed the predictive capacity of GLP-1 in ACS. In 918 patients presenting with ACS, including 321 STEMIs and 597 N-STEMIs, GLP-1, an N-terminal pro-brain natriuretic peptide, or NT-pro-BNP, plasma levels, and the Global Registry of Acute Coronary Events, or GRACE score, were assessed at time of hospital admission. GLP-1 was associated with MACE, with a hazard ratio of logarithmized GLP-1 values of 6.29. After multiple adjustments, the hazard ratio remained significant at 10.98. Time-dependent receiver-operating characteristic curve analysis illustrated that GLP-1 levels are strong indicators for early events. Indeed, for events of up to 30 days, GLP-1 was superior to HS-troponin-T, glomerular filtration rate, chronic kidney disease, high-sensitive C-reactive protein, and NT-proBNP. Adjustment of the GRACE risk estimation by addition of GLP-1 increase the area under the receiver operating characteristic curve over time in NSTEMI patients. 
These novel results are put into clinical context in an excellent editorial by Leonardo Reva from the Federal University of Uberlandia in Brazil. This issue is complemented by two discussion forum contributions. In a first one entitled Genetic Instruments with Too Many Strings Acknowledging Pleiotropy and Population Structure in Mendelian Randomization Studies Jeremy Labrec and colleagues from the Erasmus MC in Rotterdam in the Netherlands comment on the recent publication Genetically Modulated Educational Attainment and Coronary Disease Risk by Heribert Schunkert and colleagues from the Deutsches Herzzentrum in Munich in Germany. Schunkert et al. respond in a separate comment. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will find the interest of its listeners.